Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that most listeners don't actually mean to find, but it just pops up on their phone while they're trying to Google tractors. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week, as British politics further collapses so hard into rock bottom, the floor falls through to reveal we can still indeed go further... The Prime Minister and Like a Dog Had a Go at a Jumble Sale, Boris Johnson, has said that watching porn at work is unacceptable, and that must be why he's so rarely at meetings. Most MPs have a sense of responsibility. Not my words, of course, but the words of the Business Secretary and a man who bears an expression that looks like it was rejected from the design for a vegetable mascot, Quasi Quartek. Do they, though? Do they have a sense of responsibility? I mean, perhaps it's similar to Spider-Man's spider sense, where MPs feel their responsibility sense tingle and then they leap out of the way to avoid it at all possible times. Who is it a sense of responsibility to, I wonder? The evidence from the past week has only really shown yet again that many seem to be focused solely on self-gratification, with soon-to-be former MP for Tiverton and Honiton, Neil Parrish, the blueprint for every sex pest character in a country-based ITV thriller, taking the onanistic nature of Conservative MPs to its natural conclusion. Parrish was revealed to be the MP that watched porn while in the Commons, and he has now resigned because it turns out he doesn't really need anyone's help to finish himself off. He said he'd suffered a moment of madness, taking leave of his senses and a sense of decency, but having been a Tory MP for 12 years, it's likely both of those were lost quite some years ago. Apparently, Parrish found the porn in question when searching online for tractors, which begs the question of what search terms he'd used. Ploughing hard, reverse ramming, massive arse farmer. Whatever it is, he says his mistake was returning to that site while at work, but I guess everything has to pass through the Commons a few times before MPs are done with it. Yet this story is revealing for many reasons, and not just because it finally proves that the backbenches are full of wankers. It comes, if you'll pardon the expression, after a week of revelations about sexism and inappropriate behaviour in Parliament of the kind that any other job would get you fired on the spot from. But Parliament still has no human resources department, probably because it might seem silly when much of what they do there is focused solely on removing resources from humans. House of Commons Speaker and Ardman creation Sir Lindsay Hoyle and former Leader of the House, or at least that's what her CV says, Andrea Leadsom, are calling for a drastic overhaul of Westminster and I agree, probably best just to get rid of it all and then start again from the beginning, I reckon. Like one of those reboots that pretends the previous attempt didn't happen as it's just too embarrassing to admit it. Of course, the government line, much like with everything else they do, is that they don't admit it and prefer, in fact, to pretend it isn't happening or it's someone else's problem entirely. Attorney General, and what if they made a Trolls film about one who was a real shithead, Suella Braverman, said that while some men in Parliament behave like absolute animals, it's actually a problem that started in wider society. Haha, <laughs> damn, if only these politicians were able to do something about society, you know, how it works and the laws that bind it. It's such a shame they're completely powerless to its ways and they struggle in their voiceless positions of representatives of the public to do anything but succumb to an overwhelming urge that they must live life as though it's a 1970s lewd comedy film, Confessions of a Prime Minister. Quasi Quarting insisted there wasn't endemic sexism in Parliament and all of this was just some bad apples. Rotten cocks, I presume, but even if it is just some bad apples, the growers who run the orchard had picked those bad apples as representatives of the types of apple that they take pride in and placed them on display for absolutely everyone to see. 
Isn't it, however, what's expected from a group of people who sit there and vote on a myriad of ways to fuck society? When Braverman agreed that there needs to be a discussion on moral standards, it's probably so that she could learn what they are, as they've been largely absent in her career that's been rife with racist comments and wanting to abolish human rights. Was she referring to the men that made sexist comments as the absolute animals, or just the MPs that didn't go to private school or believe in any policies that don't involve bringing back chain gangs? If you look at everything that was pushed through just before the parliamentary term ended last week, Parrish's brief glimpse at rural rumps pales in comparison and makes you wonder if more MPs watch porn on their phones during work hours than they might be distracted from taking part in truly appalling behaviour for at least, I don't know, one to two minutes. And so, if anything, it might make them better people. The Nationality and Borders Bill is now set to become law because the Home Secretary and human paper cut Pretty Patel is only okay with something travelling safely through its passage if it's a bill that will stop anyone else doing so. It goes against the Refugees Convention, meaning the UK has no responsibility to provide safe routes for asylum seekers and means people are criminalised for wanting to stay alive. Still, I suppose it's only fair that the UK government treat people from abroad with exactly the same respect as they treat the British public. The Home Office will be able to remove people's British citizenship if they were born in another country, which is terrifying right now, but I give it just a few years before we're all so desperate to leave here but too poor to do so that we're queuing up outside Patel's house, swearing that actually we're from somewhere else. Please, please put me on a plane. The policing bill was also passed, meaning it will now be much harder to protest for much of the British public, and the election bill was passed too, meaning the Electoral Commission is no longer independent and you'll need ID to vote, which may be tricky when Boris Johnson is also talking about privatising the passport office, so it's going to cost you four times as much to get your name spelled wrong, and, and you'll have to take three days asking an online bot where your passport is because some every driver drop kicked it into a river. So to summarise, you can't complain about anything, no one can come in to see how shit it is, and voting will become irrelevant as fraudulent campaigning will be overseen by fucking Michael Dropfruit Gove. Are we a democracy or merely a shit-awful low-budget secret cinema experience based on the film Misery? Of course, the Labour Party provided brilliant opposition to all these bills by leader and man with all the impact of a piss dribble on a forest fire, Keir Starmer, not even turning up to vote against any of them. Then again, he is currently dealing with a vicious media campaign that says he had a beer and a curry in Durham during a time when there wasn't a lockdown and the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who definitely still laughs at the Compare the Meerkat adverts, said everyone should go out and eat things to help the country. Of course, the problem for Starmer is he doesn't want the public to think that he broke rules that weren't actually there or helped the country, as either could have an adverse effect on how they see him, which currently isn't at all. Instead, the Labour Party have been capitalising on it being 25 years since inspiration for the warp face filter Tony Blair became Prime Minister, because nothing would bring voters fond memories of a Labour government than reminding them of his leadership while the news is filled with stories of an illegal war. Despite just hoping everyone wishes it was 1997, Labour do currently have a plan to reduce the cost of living by having a windfall tax on the profits of energy companies, which is quite good and much better than the Chancellor, who simply said it would be silly to give people more support for their rising energy bills. Yes, yeah, so silly to help people now when they need it, when he could save the country loads of money by leaving it until everyone freezes to death. It's such an interesting way to use the word silly, isn't it? That definitely shows that he thinks the British public's needs are along the same relevance and importance as a foam string that ruins car and causes asthma. Does Rishi Sunak play silly games with his kids where he sits them down and tells them they're having their pocket money cut off but the rent is due and if they don't pay it they'll be out and there's no point asking for freebies as hey, he can't help everyone. Boris Johnson's plan for helping people with the cost of living crisis is to reduce health and safety measures because again, nothing will reduce the cost of living like not doing it anymore and just dying. The Prime Minister has suggested lowering the legal limits on the number of adults needed to supervise children, probably because he's never supervised any of his and therefore saved loads of money. I mean, that's got to be a vote winner, right? Who gives a shit about the safety of their own kids? If they weren't so insistent on living in the future anyway, we'd save loads of costs on trying to prevent climate change or educating them or, well, food or anything. I mean, with every few that get lost or are taken out by a kettle due to a lack of people watching them in a nursery, there's thousands saved and it can only benefit us all by ensuring we, as a species, have even fewer generations before the end. The other totally safe area to slash safety regs is with cars, as MOTs can only be needed every two years, and again, nothing will save costs like your car being written off beyond repair, so you won't have to spend anything on fuel or insurance ever again. And I know what you're thinking, neither of those help people who don't have kids or a car, but obviously, if those MOTs are done, we could wipe a few of those out as well with some really dangerous driving. Why doesn't the Prime Minister help everyone out, though, and just remove all health and safety legislation for everywhere? It'd probably save loads of money if train tracks could be built unknown right through hospitals, and why are we spending all this money on zoos and animal food when tigers could roam the streets and eat unsuspecting victims for free? 
Yes, Neil Parrish inspecting backhoe loaders is grim and awful, not least because his entire body looks like it's made of foreskin. But in reality, he was affecting, what, maybe two people's lives? I mean, I guess it depends on how many people were in the video he watched. Maybe six people, ten people's lives? And then he resigned. Whereas the High Court this week said the government's decision to send untested COVID patients from hospitals back into care homes in March 2020, leading to over 20,000 deaths, was unlawful. And yet, despite watching all those people's lives get horribly fucked, the Prime Minister is still very much in his job. The excuse that he has is that neither he nor former Health Secretary and the embodiment of the feeling that you may have sharted, Matt Hancock, knew that COVID could be transmitted asymptomatically at the time, but they were told it several times in the two months previous. Sure, I mean, that doesn't actually mean that Boris Johnson attended any of those meetings or had any idea what on earth they were talking about, but you'd think the Prime Minister, more than anyone, would know it's very possible to ignore the signs that someone is carrying something inside them that may well change your life, and it's better to be safe than sorry. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak didn't resign after it turned out that his wife had paid money just to avoid taxes, and he's now been cleared by the Cabinet's ethics advisor and what if a belly button just lived its own life, Lord Gate, who investigated everything within about two weeks by deciding before he started that actually the Chancellor was on Kushti. He is the ethics advisor, and that doesn't mean he has to check their ethics, merely advise when it's fine not to have any, as there's fuck all he can be bothered to do about it. I mean, what a great money-saving solution to not even investigate in the first place. And just imagine all the money he could save if we scrapped all health and safety regulations and told the police that they can solve all crimes by not even turning up at all. So, poor Neil Parrish for having some dignity. I mean, not very much. He watched porn in the House of Commons. And yet, somehow, that is more than all those MPs who happily watched people die while they were in the Commons, or worse, while they were at an illegal party. Politicians used to resign for all sorts of things that now, in light of Johnson's government, may seem really petty, but Parrish took a stand, or at least one part of him did, for having shame and embarrassment at being a fucking awful human being. Neil Parrish said of his resignation that it was almost as if a weight had been lifted off him, which isn't the best phrase to use considering. But what a headfuck it must have been to be in the Conservative Party for quite so long and then realise that out there is a whole industry for giving pleasure rather than taking it away and stamping all over it. He is not a good person, and yet, compared to the Prime Minister in his cabinet, Neil Parrish is a missionary man, apparently. <clears throat> in other news, the Culture Secretary, so-called because her very existence is like a fungal threat to your health, Nadine Dorries, unveiled her white paper to supposedly support the nation's broadcasters, but her plan to do that mainly seems to be to sell them off. I suppose it's a bit like having a kid you hate having, so deciding it would be best to let them be adopted by someone who'll use them as a servant. Or, I don't know, scrapping all the health and safety regulations so they just get killed off at school. Part of this paper involves the privatisation of Channel 4, despite the fact that it doesn't cost the taxpayer anything, as it's all paid for by advertising revenue and its various parts like Film 4. But Dory says it's being held back from becoming like streaming services such as Netflix, which is currently losing money and subscribers by the week. Perhaps Dory thinks Channel 4's content will be even better if no one watches it, as she loves GB News, and that has an audience total of just her, and only her when she's drunk. Which, to be fair, does mean that actually she's a very regular viewer. Dory's also mentions how well the privatising of Channel 5 did for them, which is curious as Channel 5 was never publicly owned, unlike Dory's every time she opens her mouth. Still, the only bonus of the Conservatives being insistent on selling off every single aspect of the nation is that when racists shout Britain's our country, they will be factually very wrong. Co-chairman of the Conservative Party, Oliver Dowden, who I'm sure could be melted with a magnifying glass on a sunny day, complained on Twitter about a reported Labour and Lib Dem election pact that he also says is secret. And I'm not sure how it's both those things at once, but maybe he's just taking into consideration the Prime Minister's inability to read things unless it has his name in them. Dowden says the plans deny voters a proper democratic choice, unlike, you know, when the Conservatives pay the DUP £1 billion for an alliance without any public consultation, or they offered the Brexit Party peerages to stand down seats in the 2019 election, or they formed a coalition government with the Lib Dems in 2010. I suppose with Dowden, though, it's a bit like when the kid at school everyone thinks is cool has all the friends for the first few years, and then they realise, actually, no, they're an evil dickhead, and even all the other evil dickheads move on, and everyone else gets better friends instead. Dowden's just finding it hard that being the bully's sidekick hasn't worked out well for him and there's not even a chance that a kids party would side with him now. Bringing the Electoral Commission in-house and voter ID that would deny millions of people the right to vote is also denying voters a proper democratic choice but I suppose that's different because Labour did help with that one by not voting against it. And lastly, study has shown that post-Brexit trading rules that came into force caused a major shock to trade, dropping imports from the EU by 25%. 
Minister of Brexit Opportunities and part-time boatman for the River Styx, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has decided to delay implementing full customs checks from the EU for a fourth time, as it turns out the best opportunity Brexit has given is the ability to avoid it for as long as possible. Mogg says that enforcing Brexit checks would have been an act of self-harm, which I then suppose means that Brexit was either an early sign that serious help was needed or the beginnings of a teen emo phase for the entire country, which I worry is going to really upset the racists that voted for it when they see that the next part is making a lot of the country black. Local elections on Thursday with 4,111 council seats up for grabs in England and all local authority seats in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland Assembly elections too. Experts say that there are two elections at play because, you know, they like to forget any countries other than England exist in Britain. But also because the cities are likely to go Labour because they don't understand that parties other than them or the Conservatives exist, while towns will stay Tory because they fucking hate themselves and wish everyone was dead. The swing seats to look out for are mostly in playgrounds that will probably be sold off regardless of wins yeah local elections week who are you voting for um i actually don't know yet but i do really want the conservative councillors around here gone so i might have to vote labor it's like a joke i used to do about british politics endlessly being this bucket's full of shit maybe if i piss in it all the shit will go oh no now it's full of piss i'll have to shit in it again Yes, yes. Yeah, I know it's pointless voting for blah, 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 because they wouldn't get in. But it wouldn't be if everyone didn't say that and they actually did it and there was actually a party that you actually wanted to vote for. Uh, It's a new polling station for us this week, though, so that's quite exciting for me. Um, I don't don't want a pollen station when I've got all this hay fever. Uh, No, I've got a new polling station because it's usually in a library, uh, but on Thursday it's going to be in a church. So I'll get to walk around saying stuff about how at least the state and the church is separate, like Ben Bradley said or something. Um, Hopefully subliminal messages about Jesus actually helping poor people will sway voters not to vote Tory but I doubt it's going to make much difference and everyone around here probably just thinks that he's too woke um, is, it, is it bad to put a cross next to a candidate if you're voting in a church isn't that a bit you know sort of a bit harsh I have no idea anyway I really hope the government get a fucking good kicking and I may well stay up late on Thursday with some booze to watch the results come in as I muttered to myself oh of course they've now somehow won all of the council seats because it turns out us English people think criminals have character uh, big thanks this week to Autumn Penkridge for joining the Patreon and to Trina Andy and Christine for the Kofi donations um, I realised last week I did do sort of the hardest Patreon push I'd ever done on this show probably ever I hate asking for money uh, it just makes me feel a bit cringe because this is a free podcast podcast um but last week it resulted in that one new donator so you know worth a try again isn't it um if you listen to this and you can afford to donate please please do i know we're in a horrendous uh cost of living crisis but um and, and i'm whinging about this to everyone at the moment which is what this is a terrible whinge i shouldn't do this but my proper job <coughs> yes it is a proper job <coughs> of stand-up comedy it is proper um it doesn't pay anymore basically cost of living has made it um just rubbish uh, hotels are too expensive to stay in uh, for accommodation if you're doing two nights of gigs and gigs don't pay for accommodation train fares uh, fuel fares food fares all of it is um it's making going to do uh, kind of pointless really so i'm trying to survive on writing work and this here podcast which isn't working great at the moment um it's weird when you sort of go what am i good at what else could i do except gigs what might earn me money and then you realize actually the only other place is to shout at drunk people who don't care um is in a pub and they they won't pay you for that you sort of have you removed so you know it's a, it's a tricky one and um, what i'm saying is patreon.com forward slash parpol bro if you fancy giving me even one pound a month for zero extra content at all just the joy of giving just do it because you're nice um or ko-fi.com ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro if you also fancy giving me one pound a month but you know on a different website it's nice to have a choice right do you know what i mean more democratic than the british political system i reckon yeah um the other thing is yes uh, i'm aware um i don't know no one's complained about this but I thought I'd say it because I'm aware I'm aware I'm not mentioning the situation in Ukraine much and that is because well uh, it's it's endless and and horrible Uh, there's developments every day and it doesn't really feel like there's much I can or would want to remotely make light of in um, any way so I'm just sort of leaving it until something happens that I can bring up on a comedy politics podcast. Um, however, I'll, tr- I'll try and do something next week. And also, I'm looking for more interviewees to talk to about the many areas to do with it, like, I don't know, energy politics or the effect of, uh, you know, the war on global politics or something like that. Um, I have to give a shout out to Olga as well, who a few weeks back asked um, a really good suggestion, actually, if I could find someone who's sort of Russian and anti-war um, to talk about the effects on Russian citizens, because it's sort of 
uh, affecting quite a lot of Russian people around the world who don't want this to be happening, and, and we're not really hearing about that. Um, I'd be keen to do that, but my searches so far have been more fruitless than a fast food menu. Um, I was gonna—I originally wrote more fruitless than my um, my daughter's diet, but that's not true. She loves fruit, so uh, I can't—I can't do too many lies on this show. It's—you know—this show's about the the truth or something. Um, still, I'm in need of guest suggestions, uh, like always. So if you've got any angles, ideas, or people that you think I should talk to, hit me up. But you know, a nice gentle way that has absolutely no hitting in it whatsoever uh right so on this week's show um i am talking to mark owen jones about digital authoritarianism and if you don't like that then i'm going to tweet that you're a nazi yeah My main reason for being on social media is to use it as, well, really yet another way to filter out brain thoughts without having to just yell them at people on the bus. But unfortunately, as has been mentioned a ridiculous number of times on this podcast over the years, social media has long since stopped being just a place for jokes with typos in or a thread of celebrities looking like inanimate objects, but now it's also a constant political battleground. Social media is now key in setting what the main news story is, spreading divisiveness and wasting absolutely hours of your life away responding to people with mostly numbers and flags in their name who insist the way to win an argument is to be just too stupid to understand anything. Now, you probably remember all the investigations into Cambridge Analytica and the amount of money the Conservatives have spent on targeted social media campaigns to manipulate votes because your dad believes everything on Facebook. Yes, he does. Even Farmville. Or you might remember the time that a Labour HQ spent money just targeting adverts at their former leader. So you thought everyone and potential voters were seeing them when they weren't. It was just him because that's the sort of entirely in-character self-own that Labour liked to do. But why have I told you that digital media manipulation was rife across the globe and weaponised trends targeted campaigns and bots are a regular part of many government's game plans to deceive the public and push through disinformation. Oh, you'd have totally guessed that. Yeah, no, OK, actually, that's that's fair. Yeah, of course you would. But how? How do you work out which hashtags were started by an authoritarian regime and how many were just started by a bored middle-aged man who hasn't been able to persuade their daughter to leave the playground and has now been there for over two hours and really it's her own fault if she falls off the climbing frame? Oh, God, sorry, that is wildly inaccurate and deceptive of me because actually I've never managed to start a trending topic in my life. And what effect is this digital media manipulation having on our lives, apart from wasting copious amounts of it trying not to reply to someone telling you to do your own research despite them having done none? Well, this week I spoke to Mark Owen-Jones, who is an expert in disinformation, deception and digital authoritarianism. As in, he researches, writes and lectures in it, not that he himself does that. Well, unless he does, and he's pretending to be someone who doesn't, but in which case he's done a really great job, so fair play either way. No, I'm only joking. Mark is definitely an expert in how social media is being used to control the political sphere and his Twitter is a constant delight and indeed scary ride through how many trends were indeed started in erroneous places and I don't just mean the House of Commons. Mark is an assistant professor of Middle East studies at Hamid bin Khalifa University in Qatar and his book titled Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East is out in June. So I asked him to come on the podcast and talk all about it and tell me just how often I'm engaging with actually no one real. On Twitter, that is, not just my failing attempts to grow my audience. It was great chatting with him, so I hope you enjoy. Here is Mark. Right, Mark, it is lovely to have you on the podcast, and and I really enjoy following you on Twitter, and I say enjoy, I do enjoy it, but every now and then I read your threads and go, oh no, I've contributed to that, I'm part of the problem, um, so, <laughs> which is a nice place to be. Um, but I, uh, I, I, if if we're okay to start right at the top, uh, for, for myself as, as well as the listeners, um, what what is digital deception? Because I feel like that could cover so many areas of our online life, um, and, and what is it, and, and how do we come across it as kind of online users and, and, and social media people? Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, love the show. And yes, that question. Um, can I give you the spiel, the mini spiel about what digital deception is? Yes, is okay? please, please do. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The spiel, is, I mean, I'll, I'll sort of say, you know, digital deception is the willful manipulation of the information space, right? Through erroneous content mm-hmm. and manipulated forms of distribution. Uh, information with the intent to cause some form of harm through demonization, uh, adversarial politics, omission, misdirection, whitewashing, or influencing information availability in the service of some political power. That's kind of how I'd say it. In layman's terms, digital deception is basically misleading people, harming people, using digital technology, uh, and basically pretending to be someone else or spreading fake news. Right. I mean, that and feels like a lot yeah, of the I, I, I can embellish it. <laughs> Yeah, that's the internet, basically. Uh, digital deception is is the internet. <laughs> Not 90s internet. I think a 90s internet was a different space entirely. 
Sure, sure. That's yeah, that's fair. It was it was mainly mainly cat pics, I think, uh, back then. Um, which yeah, exactly. some of those might have been deceptive. We don't know. Uh, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, now we get AI generated cat pics. Okay, so you know, well, exactly. I, I think we're, we're in the next generation of deception. But I mean, what, what you do um, uh, amazingly, you know, is is you you break down. You know, what I love on, on, on Twitter, particularly when you break down kind of trends and, and show where they've come from and, and why they're trending. But I mean, I have no clue how, how you do what you do. How how easy is it to kind of find uh, what, mm. you know, what if this is weaponized and, and uh, sort of purposeful digital deception as opposed to people that are just trolls having a laugh and being terrible? <laughs> how do you how, yeah. how easy is it to kind of work out what we should be worried about? Well, I think, I mean, I think, you know, going back as well to the first part of your question is, is you know, how often do we come across this? And as you said, how often is it malicious or how often it is people having a laugh? I mean, we don't always know. I think, firstly, it's very common. Um, I would say, depending on what country you're in, you know, there's probably some sort of daily event in which there is a form of online manipulation, especially on Twitter. And, you know, when it comes to issues such as politics, uh, if we look, take some obvious examples like Brexit, uh, the elections or any elections, um, I think then when there is a high opportunity or there's a high likelihood rather of there being some form of digital deception, because at the end of the day, when it comes to these big events, when it comes to politics or contest over power, which is what politics is, uh, then you have um, you know communication teams basically trying their best and using every available means they have try and influence the public. And of course, one of the main means of influence now is not necessarily radio or television, it's the internet. And if you have something like Twitter, which is very easy to manipulate, of course, bad actors or whatever you want to describe them are going to use that to, to actually try and influence the public. So it's very common and you'll, it'll become more and more common whenever there's some sort of contest over power, um, which is, like I said, an election, a, a big, um, referendum for example like brexit uh, and 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 other things that could be seen as divisive you know we, we know or there's evidence for example you know about you know the internet research agency based in russia manipulating hashtags related to black lives matter uh brexit uh, george floyd um we see these quite a lot i've been looking at chinese disinformation recently and it's really interesting because you see these um fanning the flames of, about debates related to gun laws for example in the united states um, you know, so there is constant stream of this disinformation and it's not going away. And in my experience, it, it doesn't seem to be getting better either. I mean, it, it also, you know, um, from my point of view, as, as just a, a probably a, a, a Twitter user, I use it far too often, but people jump on these mm. very quickly as well. The hashtags seem to spread incredibly quickly. Is there, as, as, as someone who sort of monitors it, are there as many failed attempts as there are successful ones? Or is it just that it's, we're really gullible and we fall for this very quickly? <laughs> it's actually, that's a really great question because in a way you've hit on what the whole uh, point or at least the desired goal of say a disinformation campaign is. So let's just say, uh, let's take an example. Sometimes, very occasionally, and I see this a lot in the Middle East, you'll see a hashtag starting and the hashtag will be loads of fake accounts and it's, they're obviously fake for reasons I can go into if you're interested. But um, they'll put out a particular hashtag that has a certain political message. And sometimes um, no one will pay it any attention. <laughs> and then what will, what will happen is that will just die. And then you analyze, and I analyze this kind of sample of these accounts, and it's so clear that they're all fake. And there's no actual engagement by real people. But when you think about it, imagine if you started, if you were this, whoever was behind this campaign, you started it off and then real people like yourself, or myself, um, or influencers, other influencers picked it up. Then it starts to get a life of its own, right? And that's when it's most effective because once you start having that organic engagement with real people, then it becomes, as you said, uh, you know, people jump on it quickly and then it, you know, it just becomes uh, a trend or it goes viral. And then that's, you know, that's the kind of money shot, I suppose, if you're, uh, an, you know, if you're starting one of these campaigns, because you do your bit, you throw in the hand grenade, if you will, it explodes, and then, you know, you've got yourself a trend. Um, and, and that's really the aim, I think, a lot of these campaigns. It makes it harder to analyze as well, because if you're analyzing a trend that's got loads of real people in it, it can be hard to know um, where the, the sort of inauthentic behavior begins 
and the real um, the real behavior ends, you know. And I think this this is you know one of the most crucial aspects of online deception is that how many of the conversations that we're having, how many of the genders being set online, i.e., the hashtags or topics, are actually being created in a sort of organic way by real people, or how many of them are being started by people who have an interest in manipulating public discourse. That's a question we don't really know the answer to. And that's why I do these threads is because I want to try and at least get to the root of some of them. Yeah, it's really scary, isn't it? And I think particularly because, you know, I, I think it's one of the things I've I've, I've come to realise, um, especially sort of from following you online, in that there are times when I'll sort of hashtag something thinking, well, I've got a joke for that, or this will be fun. And you sort yeah. of realize actually I'm becoming part of spreading something that perhaps I shouldn't be, or um, you know I, I think that we've all got our own reasons for posting things on social media. Sometimes it's to gain followers, sometimes it's to kind of yeah you know. But, but there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily thinking they're pushing an agenda, and actually they are <laughs> because of of where I, this I is do the same. Hmm. I mean, I I do the same, and you know sometimes people get a bit self righteous on Twitter, and I have my moments, of course. <laughs> And, you know, I'll, I'll perhaps, uh, you know, retweet something on a hashtag that I'm analyzing. I might not even think twice about it. And I'll retweet the hashtag whilst analyzing it. And by doing that, I'm boosting the hashtag <laughs> and signal amplification. It's only recently that I've stopped doing it. But, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's just ordinary behavior. But at the end of the day, it's true. If you just mention a hashtag, even if you're criticizing it, uh, and th- then you're also amplifying it. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you're if you're engaging in a public discussion about something, that's actually okay. I think the only issue is if that public discussion isn't actually organic, uh, then you're contributing to something that isn't really indicative or reflective of genuine public opinion. That's when it might become problematic. But as a, as we, we don't know that, we don't know which <laughs> which trends are actually organic or started organically and which are not. So we we can't really make a, an educated judgment about what hashtags to sort of. Uh, include in our tweets and which to not you know it's it's a real minefield yeah i'm gonna stop using these explosive metaphors i'm sorry (laughs) i I use hand grenade i've used minefield (laughs) you watch too much news yes well no yes but news that may well have been influenced by by an erroneous hashtag um what i was gonna say is you know it's now it's it's social media now is it ends up as news stories it ends up as uh, you know the amount of journalists that run places like twitter ends up as as being mainstream news and and that's particularly worrying when the stories they're kind of reporting or the trends they're following uh, reporting on may not have may not be real or may not have started from a real place um and i wanted to focus really because of your book um which is very exciting but your your book sort of highlights and focuses on uh, media manipulation in the middle east which is obviously as someone in the uk something i know incredibly little about so (laughs) what extent what extent is it used in the Middle East? And, and I suppose I wonder if you could give us some examples of where of when it's been used and some of the ones you talk about in the book and, and what the consequences of those were. Yeah, I mean, so, yes, the, there is a lot of manipulation in the Middle East, and I think it doesn't get talked about as much as, say, the stuff we see coming out of China or Russia. Uh, and um, just to give you as an example of the scale of it, you know, we'd look at uh, Twitter publishers uh, archives of state-backed influence operations. So basically, when it deems that a trend has been connected to some sort of state, it will delete those accounts and then publish them online. If you actually go through those archives, you'll find that the biggest uh, sort of, let's say, offenders in terms of creating fake accounts are um, after Russia and China, it's Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Egypt. So we can make a case for saying that countries based in the Middle East are some of the worst manipulators of social media or digital deception actors in social media. Um, and that's just one example, but I would say it's, there's like full stack examples. For example, Saudi Arabia, which is the most populous country in, in the Persian Gulf anyway, um, it has devoted so, so many resources to actually trying to um, manipulate social media. I mean, one of the most um, egregious examples is that there's currently a law, uh, sorry, a legal case in the U.S., the FBI or the U.S. government, rather, are um, taking uh, three people to court, two of whom are Saudi citizens, for infiltrating Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco, uh, stealing private data, and then sending that data back to Saudi Arabia. So one of the infiltrators was actually an employee of Twitter, an engineer, and he had access, and he was approached essentially by people working for the Saudi government, or the royal court, actually. 
And so they were, they, they, the, one of them ran back to Saudi Arabia. Um, so he's technically a fugitive. But this actually goes to show how seriously some of these governments take social media. And we've also heard that, you know, since that happened, some, some activists and dissidents in Saudi Arabia have basically said that their family members have been incarcerated uh, in Saudi Arabia as a result of that infiltration of Twitter. So that's, that's a really big example of the, the extent or seriousness which we see this. But the tactics we see are, you know, very, very similar. So one of the, the biggest Twitter takedowns in terms of information or sorry, accounts taken down because they were believed to be part of a state influence operation uh, was a Saudi-based digital media company and also had an office in the United Arab Emirates uh, called SMAT. They had almost 100,000 accounts taken down several years ago because they were um, basically bot accounts uh, and they were just right. engaged in pro-Saudi propaganda. That was one of the biggest single takedowns, I think, in Twitter history. It was huge. Uh, but there's so many different techniques of how social media is used. Uh, it's often used for weaponized harassment. Uh, so there was one interesting example last year, sorry, in 2020, where a journalist working for Al Zero, which is a Qatari-based broadcaster, was harassed by thousands and thousands of uh, troll accounts, but also influencers, after they distributed pictures that were allegedly stolen through spyware. So you see these kind of full-stack operations where you see this integration of things like spyware, social media fake accounts, used to spread disinformation, but also to harass people. Um, I'll just give one more example. Um, one of the most interesting cases is that of a guy called Saud al-Qathani, who was basically an advisor to the Saudi royal court. Now, he was an interesting figure because his account on Twitter was suspended um, for platform manipulation. But this was a long time after he was engaged in some of the most uh, egregious use of the platform. He used it to threaten both Saudis and opposition members. Uh, at one point, he started a blacklist. He said, and this goes back, um, I mean, I won't get too much into politics, but in 2017, Saudi cut off relationships with Qatar. But he's, and then Saudi changed the law. So if anyone demonstrated any sympathy with Qatar, they could be arrested. Wow. And basically, this guy goes on Twitter and he says, yeah, if you, anyone who uh, demonstrates sympathy with Qatar will be put on a blacklist. Please uh, include them on this hashtag or reply to my account. And he's like, don't bother trying to hide it. If you've got an anonymous account, we can find you through various techniques, including IP techniques and other techniques we cannot mention. And he said this in full view of Twitter. He had a verified account, uh, you know, thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers. And, and Twitter did nothing. And this is another thing that I argue about the Middle East is that there's this kind of digital Orientalism is where, and we saw this with Myanmar, uh, you know, with Facebook, is that how much of the global South, in inverted commas, is actually how much attention do these companies play to what goes on in the global South? Because... From my experience, what's interesting about uh, deception and disinformation in the Middle East is that the kind of things that happen, the harassment, the abuse, the threats of violence are so extensive that you they probably wouldn't be able to get away with this. It happened in, say, Europe or North America. And I, you know, there's, there's, this, art, there's this notion of digital or, um, orientalism, but also techno-colonialism. To what extent are big tech companies exploiting the markets of the global South with minimum responsibility, simply because they don't faces much pressure from having to deal with, um, you know, sort of content moderation in those regions. And I think this is also a big part of the problem. That's very scary indeed. Um, but how, do, I mean, how do you begin to tackle something like that? When, when a lot of these companies are, you know, uh, a lot of the social media companies are based in, in America um, or are based uh, yeah. at least in, in the, in the West. Um, I suppose then that means it's, potentially not in their interest that you know they're they're getting what they want from social media they're getting the users is potentially not in their interest to kind of limit and monitor uh no these countries you know it, it, especially financially i suppose for them it doesn't doesn't make much difference no it's not but let, let's put it this way right i mean i know it might seem like a uh, an extreme comparison but if you were an automobile maker or a washing machine maker and you sold a pro product that was causing danger to the users what they normally do is issue a product recall you know um this car is faulty uh, will we will issue a product recall and take them back because there is some element of corporate social responsibility and legal requirements that you can't sell dangerous products the interesting thing about social media 
is that the dangers present and the capacity it has for causing harm are not you know, as uh, understood or as accepted as other forms of harm. So I think it's interesting that big tech has a free pass to spread these products all over the world, um, even if they are causing harm. And one of the reasons for this is, is the notion that these products are celebrated as ones that will create and bring democracy and, and champion freedom of speech. And in the book, I actually compare this to the colonial notion of the civilizing mission. You know, during colonialism, it was very common for, especially under the, the French and British empires, to to say that we're bringing civilization to these kind of barbaric backwaters. Uh, and I think, in a way, big tech do the same, saying, "Well, we're bringing freedom and freedom of speech to these countries, these authoritarian regimes." And yes, in theory, those tools can be used for that. But the reality is that those tools will be co-opted by authoritarian regimes and used as tools of surveillance. So I don't think it. I don't think it washes. And I think these companies uh, need to be pressured more to actually. Have responsibility in in moderating their platforms and actually looking at how they are used in these uh, like author in within authoritarian context. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, there's there's that thing, isn't there, where a lot of people feel they rely on social media in order to keep in touch with, you know, it's because I I sort of look at Facebook and all the stories that came out about Facebook, and my immediate reaction was, well, I won't go on Facebook again, and then I I stayed on it. I just <laughs> sort of didn't use it very much, and I still message people on it, and it's because there are people that I can't contact uh, any other way, you know. But it, it's well, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. So, you, you then have your Facebook family and your. WhatsApp family, your Twitter friends, your friends become sort of parceled out of the different platforms. That's it. That's it. And, but I think that is there also that, uh, you know, like, like mentioned earlier, that, that you just don't, don't understand how you're playing a part. In it. I, I, I shouldn't give a shout out to another podcast, but that Reply All, which is one of my favourites. Um, they did an episode quite mm. a while back about um, the Mexican uh, government, I think so previous one potentially this is where i realized that i haven't listened to it in a while and my information will be terrible but i remember that they had people employed to start hashtags that would distract from things to distract from stories about them that they didn't want coming out and of course as you say people do hashtags for whatever reason you don't know that you're part of that <laughs> and so in your head you must no. be thinking i'm not causing the damage this is nothing to do with me no it's like just joining joining a crowd like i'm joining this so that story that kind of apocryphal story about there's a queue forming and people don't know what it's for they just join it yeah you know? <laughs> yeah oh wow uh, there's truth in that and that's a t that's a common tactic though like uh you know starting these hashtags as uh, you know because what happens if if you can't uh, control the message you can drown out another message by creating a hashtag and getting that to trend and by getting that to trend you'll displace whatever information it is you're trying to target again a very common tactic we see globally and it's, I mean, you know, without, um, I, I don't mean to sort of stereotype here, but when people think of the Middle East or think of Saudi Arabia, at least they sort of think of a, it is quite an authoritarian regime that you have in, in you know, in Saudi, there's a lot of uh, issues with humanitarian uh, or human rights in, in Saudi Arabia. Mm. Um, so I suppose when people think media manipulation in, in countries like that, they probably aren't that surprised about, or you mentioned Russia or you mentioned China, and it tends to be the places mm. that people will think of that there are already issues uh, in the way that they're governed. Um, what, uh, you know, how much is this used in other countries? You sort of mentioned that that it, it's harder to do so in, in Europe. Um, is mm. is it? Does that mean it's less prevalent? Because, you know, already you've mentioned Brexit, you've mentioned various things where this has been a major factor, particularly in, in UK politics. Yeah, no, I I think it's um I think it's more ignored in the Middle East. I think um it happens all, all the time in 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 Europe and and uh, let's say the UK in particular. I think um we, we've you know we see numerous examples of things like uh, there's it's so easy to create a Twitter account and you can do that uh, uh, on mass. So we know, for example, that there's troll farms working in you know not just Russia but Macedonia and also Poland. Who you know you'll have a, a, a kind of a, a building or an office with a bunch of people like five people each of whom has say 10 accounts uh they run those for nine hours a day you can produce uh, hundreds of thousands of tweets just from a couple of people working 10 accounts uh, a day right so um we see this a lot the the issue is is beyond a certain level of uh some 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 fake accounts are easier to spot than others right so if you have thousands of bots all created on the same day and tweeting about the same thing they're quite easy to spot but if you have a fake account that's been operating for a, a few years it's a real person operating under a pseudonym it's really hard to spot 
And I think this is the big danger that we see in places like UK. It's these quote-unquote sock puppet accounts or troll accounts belonging to these troll farms that are really manipulating the conversation. And, um, you know, that happens within the, the context of Brexit and, and um, you know, general politics, but it also happens as an export factor. We know that some of the biggest um, manipulators in terms of social media are, you know, UK-based companies who sell their products to uh, governments like Saudi Arabia or Bahrain or even South Africa. And they basically offer services that include social media manipulation. So it's not always just about these companies, you know, manipulating the, the, the information space in the UK. You know, UK produces a lot of disinformation for export, as I like to call it. Wow. So that's, that's where our export is now. That Since, since we don't have anything yeah, no. to, to export, we've, we've gone for disinformation. Yeah, we're good at disinformation. That is really but this is. I mean, it's phenomenal. I, I don't know if you saw the, um, you know, the, this, the, the case of Bell Pottinger, um, which was a PR company set up by Lord Bell. Again, a British lord. He was, I think, the comms advisor to Margaret Thatcher. You know, he had one of the worst, well-established British PR and political communications companies. And they basically, you know, they came to a kind of horrible end after they worked in South Africa. What they did was um, they took on a client, uh, the Gupta brothers, who were being investigated for corruption and their proximity at the time to the president, Zuma. But what actually happened is Bell Potting created loads of fake accounts on Twitter. And the campaign they decided to use was essentially one that anyone who criticized the Guptas or Zuma for corruption were guilty of racism. So what this did was provoke this huge backlash. It antagonized race relations in South Africa, obviously a country with apartheid. And once it was exposed that Bell Pottinger was behind it, the company essentially ceased to exist after that. So not only do you have wow. uh, these British companies w- with very well-to-do uh, you know, benefactors and, 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 and um, partners, but they are actually you know, generating and encouraging social division and conflict in different countries, right? So this is how dangerous we can get when it comes to deception. By manipulating public opinion and doing it in such a way, uh, you can actually aggravate social conflict. Wow. I mean, I suppose that, you know, the main way to tackle this would be laws. I mean, I know we're very far behind on on laws that that, that Mm. work with social media properly, but also it's a global issue. So it's very tricky to have laws that would kind of govern the output from from countries everywhere, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I'm assuming this is an incredibly difficult problem to tackle. It is. I mean, you're absolutely right. And this is one of the <laughs> most difficult questions to be asked about is, how do you how do you stop this information? But you have to think about it, like you said, in terms of layers. It's not just a question of like one law to fix everything. There's no silver bullet. But in the example I mentioned, you know, when it comes to PR companies, say in the UK, um, you can have a, in the US, there's the Foreign Agents Registration Act, right? So basically, if you're a PR company, American company, and you have someone you're working uh, for abroad to influence public policy in the US, you have to register, right? Because the whole point is that, you know, you shouldn't be, if you're working for another government, it it should be at least uh, public knowledge. Now, we don't have that in the UK, for example. Instead, we have these companies who can offer any of these services to anyone they want. And there's no actual formal uh, need to, 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 to declare that. So that could be one example in this case. But then, yeah, you have to have other laws. I mean, Germany have national level laws about fake news uh, and hate speech that social media companies have to comply with. And I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a massive asymmetry and disparity in how different governments tackle these things. Right In Europe, with the GDPR and um, emerging legislation, I think we're going to see far more accountability for social media companies who wish to operate in Europe. We don't necessarily see that in authoritarian regimes like in the Middle East, you know, the um, the governments are quite happy to have social media there because at the moment they are able to manipulate it or use it in specific ways that allow them to use it as a tool of surveillance and control. I mean, it's interesting now everyone's talking about Elon Musk, you know, buying up Twitter and how is that going to change? Well, Elon Musk has said a lot of things that are actually contradictory, including, you know, well, he said, you know, I'm going to get rid of all uh, fake accounts and spam. People are going to have the ability to be verified. But then he's also said that, you know, I will respect the local law in each country. Now, in reality, respecting the local law in each country is just a license for those countries to abuse the system, right? Just as an example, not necessarily directly related to communication technology, but Netflix. Netflix had a series called The Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj. 
It had one episode that was very critical of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi. So what did Saudi do? They asked Netflix to remove it. Netflix removed it for Saudi audiences. And what were Netflix doing? Well, nothing wrong. They were just complying with local Saudi law. But by doing that, they were actually giving a free pass to someone who's been accused of murdering a journalist. So respecting local law and allowing freedom of speech is, are not compatible things to do. So whatever Elon Musk says, he's, he clearly has shown that he doesn't understand the challenges of, of running a social media company. No, I mean, there's a lot of things about Elon Musk that does make me think he's probably perfect for Twitter, though, isn't he? <laughs> was his, yeah, his tweet exactly. earlier was like, the left have gone too far, but also I hate Nazis. I was like, yeah, you're absolutely, I don't think it would change that much if you're in charge somehow. It's, no. uh... <laughs> my, my theory is that he, he bought Twitter just to avoid being banned. Yes, yes, I think you're probably right. You're probably right. That's hilarious. Um, I so I, you know, here's here's the thing. I, apart from obviously following yourself, what 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 can what can we do to be more aware of this? You said there are ways to spot bots, which I've read lots about, and I still succumb to mm. bot tweets every you know every now and then. What are the ways that we can be a bit more aware of what we're seeing? I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think you know it depends. A lot of the time, when you're spotting bots, you have to kind of analyze them en masse, which as an individual, you can't just do and you can't do quickly. So I think I always always think if you desire to retweet something, if you're not quite sure who that person is, uh, then don't retweet it, or at least do a bit of due diligence, look at the account. Is it an actual person? Or is it just someone using a pseudonym? Uh, I tend now not to retweet anyone unless I believe that they're to be a real person, just because <laughs> I have my doubts. I'm so cynical, I've become so kind of suspicious um, that I just avoid it. But, you know, there's, there's no obvious tells. New accounts tend to be more suspect. Um, you know, you can sometimes you'll see really old accounts with only a few tweets, which is a good example of a sock puppet. Sock puppet is an account that's been hacked or bought and sold and then cleaned by someone, kind of like money laundering. Um, so if you see like a really old account with only a few tweets, that's usually sus. Um, or an account with loads and loads of tweets. If you've seen an account with maybe like 200,000 tweets or 100,000 tweets plus, uh, it's likely to be a spammy tweet or a political spam account. So, you know, there's things like that that are kind of red flags, uh, but there's no smoking gun, you know. I suppose if there was, Twitter would uh, filter out its source, but <laughs> as we know, Twitter are pretty terrible at uh, policing their own platform. Yeah, that's true. I suppose that the main thing you can do is delete Twitter, but I don't have that willpower. I can't I can't advise on this. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm too weak. Yeah, me I'm too. too weak, me so. too. Is it, I mean, is it as bad? That's one thing I didn't ask really. Is it as bad? We, we've discussed Twitter a lot and we've sort of briefly mentioned Facebook, but is it as bad yeah. across? I mean, I don't really see LinkedIn sort of kicking off with disinformation in the same way. Are there other <laughs> platforms that are... Um, that are as... it, it does happen though. Right. It does happen, honestly. I mean, you know, I did an investigation... Um, in 2020 with a journalist from Daily Beast, Adam Rawnsley. And honestly, it was fascinating. We found, now this is, you know, we found 25 or around 25 fake journalists who had published about 100 opinion pieces in about 50 different international news organizations. Now, let's be clear, these people did not exist as real people. It was obviously a PR company that had created fake personas, right, to write articles, which they wrote, and then fooled legitimate news organizations into publishing. It's, it's mad when I describe wow. it. But in order to create the, to create, and I mentioned this in the book, I, I sort of document the, the kind of investigation because it's, it's pretty interesting. But they would, they created two blogs that looked kind of quasi-official and wrote a few articles for that. But then they also created, each of the journalists would create a LinkedIn account, a Facebook account, a Twitter account to again, give them some sort of breadth of social media. So if I was an editor, someone pitched me an article and I just Googled them, one, I'd see that they had a small portfolio of articles written on some blog, but then I'd also see that they had LinkedIn pages that were uh, superficially plausible, right? So, you know, when we look at kind of disinformation, we have to think about context, right? LinkedIn might be good if you're, for example, trying to engage in social engineering, trying to trick someone into believing that you exist. Because if I see that you have a LinkedIn profile and a Facebook profile and a Twitter, I'm like, okay, this person has multiple profiles, they must be credible. Um, but I'm not necessarily going to go that next step and look to see if the photo is stolen from someone else yeah. or if it's an AI generated photo, which in this case it was. So you do see it. Um, and, and, and Facebook, I mean, Facebook is obviously extensive, very popular. So it's a big problem on Facebook, uh, disinformation. LinkedIn, I think is, is probably, you know, in third place or maybe in 10th place, but you know, in the ones we've mentioned, it's definitely at the, at the back of the queue, but Facebook is, is, yeah, there's a lot of manipulation there. And um, Facebook are better, I would say, at trying to combat it. Right. Um, 
or they may, maybe they're just better at publicizing the fact they're combating it. Can't quite tell yet. I do have really worrying <laughs> views about the metaverse, and you're talking to a giant baby, and they're not oh, even a real God. person, or you know, whatever. <laughs> it's going to well, horribly. I've used virtual chats. I've used virtual chat, and my avatar is a is a large goose with really muscly arms. <laughs> so I I don't know what that says about me or or the future of deception. But it's well, it's just I don't look so like complicated, that, by the way. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say your Twitter avatar doesn't give those vibes. Uh, you need to you need nah, to change it. Swole so goose. People can be very disappointed when they meet you, and you're not you're not this yeah, goose with a goose arms. with swollen arms. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, wrong. Yeah, not fair. Not fair. To well, you. am I? Maybe I am in the metaverse. I am who I want to. Be. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Oh, brilliant. Well, it's been it's been great talking to you, Mark. It's lo- lovely to speak to you. And yeah. I, you know, apart from apart from your book, which everyone must get, digital authoritarianism in the Middle East, which they can pre-order now. Um, apart from the book and your Twitter, which I find endlessly useful and fascinating. Um, who who else would oh, you recommend you. that listeners check out? Um, uh, writers, websites, books. You know, all about the effects of media uh, of media manipulation on politics. Who are the people that you go to for info? Yeah, well, I mean, one of my favorite books that I've read recently is This Is Not Propaganda, um, Adventures in the War Against Reality by Peter Pomerantsev, uh, who's a uh, so Soviet-born British journalist. Um, great, great, great book. And, you know, the reason I like that book is that it kind of goes through uh, various case studies. He's a journalist and he goes to speak to people who are involved in, in both spreading propaganda but also tackling it. Uh, it's a really great book, very accessible. Um, but, you know, there's, there's um, Vianne Becker, who's a professor, uh, up in Wales, she writes a lot of good stuff about propaganda and PR and disinformation. Uh, Claire Wardle is also good on uh, disinformation. Uh, so yeah, they they there are some really kind of good people to follow. I think. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks tons to Mark, who, as I mentioned in the interview, I've been following on Twitter for quite some time. And honestly, his studies on where trends have come from are both fascinating and also often make you feel like, oh, I'm actually part of the problem, which is nice. Uh, Mark's upcoming book is called Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East and will be out in hardback in June, published by Hearst. But you can pre-order it now. And yes, of course, the link is in the podcast blurb. I'm not an amateur. You know me. Um, And you can also follow Mark on Twitter at Mark, that's M-A-R-C, Owen Jones. And if you happen to study at Hamid bin Khalifa University in Qatar, then guess you might bump into him there too. I have no idea what the crossover of Parpol Broads and students in Qatar is, but you never know. And shout out to you if you're there. What other people should I talk to? I feel like after six years of this podcast, there are still some areas of politics I've not covered even once. Um, I'm aware of a few of them, which I'm still trying to find guests to chat about. Thank you to those of you that have emailed in. And if I haven't got them on since you've emailed in, it's because they don't reply to my emails. But I'm probably still missing loads of areas, aren't I? Because, well, isn't all of life politics? All of life, except maybe the pigeon that sits in the tree opposite our flat and always stares at me. But then maybe I'm ignoring some major pigeon political conflict that requires him to be there. So... I don't know, maybe I should research that. So apart from Stary Pigeons, do send all suggestions for who and what to talk to at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. 
And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for lending me your ears, though I hope there's not a fine for late returns, as I've definitely lost a few under stacks of things, and I may have accidentally put some in the recycle bin. I'm very sorry, and I hope it was worth it. If you did enjoy sacrificing your audio consumption time to this weekly noise, then please do consider sponsoring it happening by donating even £1 a month to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, or just buying me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, which is basically the same thing, but in a different place. Maybe even review the show at Apple Podcasts or similar pod hostels, but mainly why not just tell other people that like the unpopular combination of comedy and politics to tune in and give it a whiz. Actually, that sounds gross, and I don't want any whizzes, so maybe just listen. Leave your whiz out of it. Ugh. Gracias to Acast, my brother, Last Skeptic and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when unexpected local election results get muddled up with the local paper's adverts and all seats go to a school hall that needs them for its summer concert. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by XXX Tractor Fans, a site for all your necessary tractor poor needs, but that most people find while Googling air circulation methods. <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.